Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Nice to see all of you made the trip out. Very good. So we're going to be at Acts 27 today. We've been going through the whole book, and we will finish it next week with Acts 28. Today we're at Acts 27. So there's a story that goes like this. One day, there was an old farmer that was working in his field with an old sick horse. Okay? The farmer, after working this horse, felt compassion for the horse and said, you know what, I'm going to let the horse go into the open fields so that he can spend the rest of his life. And then his uh, neighbors and fellow villagers came up to him and said, how unfortunate you must be. What are you going to do for work now? It's just going to be you. You don't have the horse. How unlucky you are. And the farmer said, who knows? We shall see. Two days later, the horse comes back with like a, a, a team of horses, like 12 new young horses. And the old horse is rejuvenated from spending the time out in the open fields. The villagers come back to this old farm and say, how lucky and fortunate you are now. Look at all the new horses you have to help you with your work. And he says, the old farmer, who knows, we shall see. The next day, his only son gets up early in the morning to go train these new horses. He falls off the horse and breaks his leg. The villagers and the neighbors come around and say, how unfortunate and unlucky you are. Your only son that helps you do the work is now injured. How are you even going to survive this? And he says, who knows, we shall see. A week later, a war breaks out in the region, and the emperor of that region is trying to enlist all the young, young sons and males, except for this one farmer's son cannot. He's deemed unworthy because of his broken leg. The villagers come back to him and say, how lucky and fortunate you are, old farmer, that your son doesn't have to go to war. He says, who knows, we shall see. Right? As, we go th- as we've gone through the book of Acts, I could imagine Paul's old friends and new friends probably having these, a similar conversation around these terms. For example, when Jesus resurrected, spirit fell on the 120 disciples in the upper room, the gospel started spreading out. We heard last week that Stephen was the first martyr. Paul was there holding the robes of the people that were doing this to Stephen. And the Jewish leadership gives Paul all of this authority for God, their God, to give this authority to stop this Jesus talk, this uh, blasphemy talk. The old friends of Paul must have looked at him and said, how fortunate and lucky you are that our leaders would give you this authority, that our God would give you this uh, blessing to go stop this in the outside of of our religion. Acts 9, we see that Paul on his way to arresting all of these Christians Jesus revealed to him, and he's blinded. Now, his old group of friends must have looked at him and said, how unfortunate you are, Paul. You just got received all of this authority, and now you can't even see where these people are running to, right? But Paul's life was so transformed by the power of God, by the gospel, that Jesus heals him, okay? And he starts preaching, planting churches wherever God takes him to, right? And that's what we've been reading through the book of Acts. Paul's life, Peter's life, planting all these communities off Jesus' life and resurrection and the love that Jesus has for mankind. But then after a third missionary journey of Paul's, he gets word from God that he's got to go back to Jerusalem. His new friends now tell him, Paul, Jerusalem is not a good place, my, my, my buddy. You are not going to have a good time in Jerusalem. Please don't go. They're pleading with him not to go. 
to the point where there's a prophet, Agabus, where he, the prophet, goes up to Paul, grabs Paul's belt, and wraps himself with Paul's belt to show Paul how he would end up in Jerusalem. And they plead with Paul, Paul, don't do this, it's not going to end well. Well, the conversation probably should have gone, who knows, we shall see. Correct? He goes to Jerusalem, and he gets arrested. It doesn't end well for Paul. Right? So the friends were right. But then in a jail cell, during his time in prison, God in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, speaks to Paul, reveals himself to Paul in this chaotic moment. And he says, God says to Paul, Take courage, as you have testified about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify in Rome. And here's my point by way of introduction to the chapter 27. I find myself that a lot of the times when we're walking this faith out, and we don't know exactly where we're headed. We, if I can use the imagery of the garden, we always, not always, but too many times, and one is too many, Adam and Eve, they look to the tree of good and evil. That's what they're plucking out of, because that's what man's eye sees. This is what probably is good for me, so this is what I'm going to do. Who knows? We shall see. God knows. We pluck from the tree of life, and that's what we'll see in, the, in chapter 27. A man transformed by the power of the gospel, by the love of Jesus, staying close to God and plucking out of that tree of life of Jesus, not the good and evil that the world deems good or evil as the old farmer's friends. So who knows, we shall see. Right? Um, And if we're honest with ourselves, most of the time we don't really know what God is up to. But that's the exciting part, that's the beautiful part, and that's what keeps us childlike in trusting our Heavenly Father and staying close to whatever He's doing. For example, my mom's uh, brother, Omar, my uncle, he's a wild man. Okay? Ever since we met him when we came from Cuba at six, he was nuts. So the first time experience I had with him, he, he took me and arrows to a basketball court, and he said to us, the first one, to, we were this high and we're playing with real basketball nets. He said, the first one to score will get the only strawberry yogurt. <laughs> Me and Eros from Cuba, we didn't have yogurt. So we thought this was going to be the best treat of our lives. And this is how our, 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 our relationship with our uncle was. One day we'd be sitting, having a meal, and two minutes later he gets up and he goes, who's coming with me? And we're just like, going where? No, no, no. The question is, who's coming with me? So you either had to know him and say, yes, wherever you're going, that's where I'm going to go because I know you, or you don't go, right? Augustine wrote this, if you understand, it is not God you understand. A bit of truth in that. God is so infinite that we actually wouldn't be able to understand him. If we say, this is what God is like, we're probably missing the point. We might see a speck of God, but he's too infinite and far away, but at the same time near. And that's the mysterious thing of God and the beautiful thing about God. And that's what we'll see in Acts 27. We actually don't know how God is going to give Paul courage to get to Rome and how that's going to play out, but it's going to happen. God will bring us safely through the chaos. In Romans 8.28, it says, In all things, he, God our Father, works for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He will work all things out for his glory, for our good, and enjoyment of who he is. So let's turn to Acts 27 and we'll start. Verse 1. 
Everybody good? When it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship of Adrumitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. Was with us. The next day we landed at Sidon, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. From there we put out to sea again and passed to the Lee of Cyprus. Whenever it says the Lee, it's the safe side of the place. I had to Google all this stuff. Google's great. <laughs> because the winds were against us, and that's the thing. They have to go through a safe path. They're on a boat. They have to go through a safe path to get away from the heavy winds. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There the centurion, Julius, found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. We made, slow, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving on, on Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the Lee of Crete, opposite Salmon. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens, near the town of Lassia. So we'll stop there for now. We picked the story up. If you remember, Acts 26, Kath preached. Um, that Paul is in front, uh, in, in front of Festus and Agrippa, King Agrippa, and explaining his case again. And at the end of that explanation of Paul's defense, King Agrippa and Festus actually say this man is innocent of all of these charges, but he appealed to Caesar, so to Caesar he must go. So this is where we're at in the story. They're making the trail to Rome, to Italy. Okay? And this is a first century Uber ride. Uber a first century Uber ride to Rome, okay? We've got Julius, the commander-in-chief from the royal regiment from Rome, and we've got other prisoners and a bunch of sailors, okay? Um, and we land in, where are we? Sidon, where Julius begins to show kindness to Paul, okay? Remember that Paul has played the wild card of being a Roman citizen. He was about to get flogged in one of his trials, and then Paul, about to get beat up, goes, but do you know that I'm a Roman citizen? Everybody since that time has been on edge because you can't just beat up a Roman citizen without a fair trial. So he played that card. Everybody's on edge. So this Julius guy is probably saying, this is a high-end profile type of criminal we've got here. Let me just show him some respect before I lose my job. Right? Um, but at the same time, Luke, the writer of Acts, designed his Gospel of Luke and Acts, with some parallels. Okay, so if you think about Jesus, he went through a trial where the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, at that time said he was innocent of those charges that were being laid against him. And then Jesus on the cross is placed with prisoners. Paul has just been deemed innocent by the Roman governor and now is on a ship ride to his execution with prisoners around him. And this is the point that Luke is trying to show us regardless of who you are, male or female, regardless if you're Greek, Jew, religious, non-religious, slave or free, jailer or the prisoner, the gospel breaks through all of those borders. The gospel reaches every single heart. And that's what we see here. We'll see through the book of uh, chapter 27 that Julius is the one in charge, 
But Paul, through the power of the gospel, will be the one that everybody pays attention to in this, in this ship, in this Uber ride. And I love reading these moments because Paul is about to head into some very difficult times in this ship and in Rome. And the Bible tells us he's with Luke, he's with, uh, what's his name? Uh, Aristarchus from Macedonia. God very strategically places us into communities. From Genesis 1, we were built to be in community. The, the enemy wants us to be alone in these times, wants us to think that we are the only ones going through something, wants us to think that nobody else has these doubts, nobody else has these feelings. But God, in his, in his word, shows us many examples where it's community. It's very tough sometimes for some of us to be in community. If you take your Enneagram test, your personality test, for some people, it's very tough to be in community. But it's always better to be in community, especially in times of difficulty. Um, another reason Julius is being kind to Paul is that he in, uh, has a bunch of prisoners to take care of, and in this time, nobody took care of prisoners. You didn't get bedding, you didn't get clothing, you didn't get food, you didn't get anything. So Paul is being allowed some free freedom here to go be provided for by his friends in Sidon, and knowing Paul, he's probably going to bring back food and a bunch of stuff for the other prisoners on the ship to keep the peace on the ship. So it's, it's a whole political landscape that's happening on this Uber ride, okay? Um, yes. Yeah, moving on. So the Uber ride is ready to take off from Sidon, and then they stay close to the coast. Uh, so they've gone to Sidon, and now they're going to Lycia, where there's going to be a change of ships. Julius, the commander-in-chief, the centurion, finds a bigger ship from Alexandria that's headed to Rome, probably with some grain or pasta, who knows, but it's headed to Rome, and that's what Julius says, this is the ship we're going to take, because it's going to be the fastest way to get there. Um, and we're at verse 9. They actually arrive at a, at a harbor called Fair Haven, and ironically, it's not going to be a safe haven to be at because of the winds that are being smashed on this harbor. So we're at verse 9, where a discussion is going to arise. Much time had been lost, and sailing had already become dangerous, because by now it was after the Day of Atonement, meaning it was somewhere between the month of September and October. The Day of Atonement is a festival for the Jewish people. For example, this year, Israel will celebrate on September 27th. So that kind of gives us where they're at on the calendar. Um, meaning, also meaning that the winds and the waves are getting heavier. It's about to be wintertime. So Paul warned them, Men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring, bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the sailors want a better harbor to, to winter in, the majority decided that we should, sail, we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest. The centurion listens to the majority of, of the, the opinions. He listens to the captain of the ship. He's listening to the, to the to majority of the people. And Paul is saying, listen, this is not going to go well. So the centurion does not listen to the wisdom that he doesn't know Paul actually has. Remember, Paul has been on three missionary journeys. He's probably sailed something, scholars will say something like 3,000 miles. 
Okay, so he's got a ton of experience at this, and they're not listening to him. For example, when I was in school in Manhattanville, in New York, I was recruited there, and in the conversations of being recruited, um, I said my brother had to come with. This was in a school that I wanted to go to, um, and I wanted my brother there with me. So we both go down there, and in the first two years, Eros does not play. Now, Eros is like a pure goal scorer in soccer, if you know anything about soccer. Okay? He might not look like it now. He falls over his feet sometimes, but it's fine. <laughs> no, but he's a, he's, a, he's a pure goal scorer, okay? And this is, this is the, the point I'm trying to make. The coach didn't know what he had in Eros. Okay, so we had one coach for the first two years who didn't play Eros. Eros in practice would score goals. Eros by the second year was probably the, he was the best forward on the team by far. And the coach just didn't see what Eros had. Come the third year, a new coach comes into town and says, Eros is going to be our striker, our goal scorer. Okay? In that first year of playing, Eros becomes All-American, leads the nation of America, Division I, Division II, Division Three, in scoring goals per game. This is like unheard of. Okay? The coach didn't know what he had in Eros. And this is what the centurion doesn't know what he has in Paul. He's listening to people that should have practical help in the captain of the ship, in the sailors. But Paul, through the wisdom and the journey that God has taken him, has much more wisdom than the world can, can figure it out. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. This is Paul explaining to uh, the church in Corinth what he's been through. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. The man was floating in sea for a night and a day. Okay? They didn't know what they had in Paul, but they will soon know because of the power of God, because of the power of the gospel. By the end of this chapter, you will see the picture that everybody's just turning to Paul, and Julius will actually want Paul to lead everything. And that's the power of the gospel. The gospel super, supersedes the power of man in every situation. And the, the, the storm that they're about to get into, as we'll read on, is really all probably happening because of profit, because of money. Money talks. These guys are trying to get this grain cargo ship to Rome before the winter ends. It would be the last grain ship to get to Rome. There's a lot of money in that at that time. Okay, so there's no other ship bringing stuff to, to Rome. This is going to be the last ship. The same for the centurion. He would bring all these prisoners safely, and he would be the one walking off the ship going, and look at all the grain that I brought before the winter's done. So money talks, and they're about to get into problems with that. Verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Kata, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. The lifeboat, scholars will say that in some boats, the lifeboat actually wasn't like, you know how we watch the Titanic, and the lifeboat is like on the sides of the ship? The lifeboat really sometimes they dragged it behind the ship. So this lifeboat is like, getting filled in with water, and they're just trying to hoist it up because they need the lifeboat. So the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Syrtis, which is by Libya's coast, 
they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. The cargo, their grain that they actually wanted to get to Rome, that's the first thing to, to start going here. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. This is like very uh, useful equipment now that's being thrown over. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. The crew, after dismissing Paul's wisdom, catch a wind in their favor and they're off to a great start. But isn't it true that our mistakes sometimes, we don't feel it right away. We don't feel it the same day, some of these mistakes. For example, back to Manhattanville. I was captain, captaining the team at one point. Errol will remember this. Um, and there was one day we had a, a workout to get to. Now, there was a couple people not going to be able to make it to the workout, and there was a big soccer game happening in the professional world. And I thought to bring the team together, it was a lot of younger players, a lot of newer players, to bring the team together, let's skip the workout, unify the team, and watch the, the, the game together. Sound like a great idea, I thought. The next day we had a team meeting, and I get a text message from the coach, tell the team the team meeting is going to be outside on the field and bring lots of water. Okay? So the, when I had made that decision, I thought I was being a good leader. The next day I found out I was being a horrible leader. I lost my captaincy that day, and we ran and ran. Why? Because the coach deemed that was not what was supposed to happen. All that to say, sometimes our mistakes aren't felt the same day. This is what they're doing. They leave the coast, the Fairhaven coast. They're trying to get to their new harbor. They feel a gentle wind, and they put the Uber ride on sport mode. That's what weighing the anchor down means. I Googled that too. Weighing the anchor, they're just taking off. They put the thing on sport mode and let's get to the new harbor. And they don't get there. A hurricane force wind hits them. Okay? And the storm gets so bad that everything that can go, does go. Isn't it interesting in our own lives when we think everything is going well sometimes, when we think everything is under control in our lives, we've got peace of mind, we've got everything put together. A little bit of a wind that we didn't expect and everything starts shaking. And now... You start pushing people to the sides. You start taking things into your own hands and whatever can go in your life that you deemed not worthy of the struggle that you're going through, you're willing to put it off. In Acts 27, what we're going to see is a man of God that was transformed in Paul And we're going to see faith in him, hope in him, love in him. And the question for us today is, we don't know what God is doing in our lives sometimes. He works in mysterious ways sometimes. And in those moments of chaos and in those moments of the storm, what will we find inside ourselves? Will it be hate? Will it be fear? Anxiety or worry or will it be faith, love, and hope like Paul? Luke tells us the whole crew gave up all hope of being saved and being rescued. They lost all hope of the storm quieting down. And sometimes we feel like the storm lasts a little bit too long than we expected. 
And sometimes even so long that it's neither useful to us anymore. And we look up at God and maybe even ask God, are you even there? And the answer is, wait, we shall see. Could it be that God is molding us to strip ourselves from the love of the world? The the world is a beautiful place. God himself created the joy of the world, the beauty of the world. But could it be that God sometimes molds us to strip ourselves from having faith in his hand and not him? Faith in his gifts instead of him and who he is. The deconstruction of our lives does suck and it is painful, but the transformation through his promise, through meeting him, is beautiful when we look back at it. God's plan for us is to worship in the waiting and while we're waiting. And we can trust him that he will bring us safely through. And maybe some of us are in that place today, sitting here. We've been in that place. We know of that place. And we believe in Jesus as our Savior for our lives and in our life. Or maybe church, maybe you're sitting here in church is just mind games for you. And you actually don't believe. But one thing you do believe in is that the storm continues on. And we feel no hope at times. We feel no faith at times. And maybe sometimes we don't feel anything at all. And Acts 27 is a beautiful reminder that God works in mysterious ways. The human heart wants God something to do that we can expect of him. This is what God needs to look like. And there's a song that I love, the lyrics says that if we look after packaging the whole time, we're going to end up in boxes. If we try and package God in our fears, we're going to end up ourselves in a box, ourselves in a storm, ourselves in a jail cell. And the thing is, our emotions, God created us with emotions. They're good for us, but they're not meant to be the Messiah. They're not meant to be our God. They're meant to be submitted to God's promises, submitted to God's word, submitted to who God is. And what we'll see in Paul is someone that probably felt all of those things in the storm, but humbly and reliantly trusted God because God had said something to him. And maybe he didn't remember it, but God will say it again. He'll say it again because it's God that gives us the strength to go through it. It's God that brings us through those situations. He is our rock. He is our fortress. He's our refuge. The psalmist writes in Psalm 18, I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, and my deliverer. My God is my rock, in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I call to the Lord who is worthy of praise. And I have been saved from my enemies. The cords of death entangled me. The torrents of destruction overwhelmed me. The cords of the grave coiled around me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called to the Lord. I cried to my God for help. He parted the heavens and came down. Dark clouds were under his feet. He made darkness his covering, his canopy around him. 
He reached down from on on high and took a hold of me. He's going to take a hold of all of us. He drew us out of deep waters. The Lord lives. Praise be to our rock. Exalted be our God, our Savior. Therefore, we praise you, Lord. Among the nations, we will sing the praises of your name. Remember that in Genesis 1, it was darkness and waters and chaos and void that was there. And then God spoke, let there be light. And then God said, let there be life. And he's been saying that through all of eternity, through the prophets, through Jesus, to all of us through his word. Let there be light, let there be life, let there be faith in our lives in those moments. His speaking is his doing. When God speaks, he's doing something. If he can create life back in Genesis, he created the world, he created the galaxies out of nothing, he can speak life into me and you. To transform us like he did with Paul's life. To Paul, he doesn't speak a new promise. To Paul, he speaks an old promise of two years ago in Acts 23 to take courage. But this time, and this is what God will do, our blessings and our our trials and our testings and our storms, just like our blessings can be a blessing to us, but it's meant to be a blessing to everybody. The same with the opposite in the storm and in the chaos. God will encourage us in those moments, but then it's to encourage the many afterwards. And that's what we'll see in verse 21 till the end. Verse 21, it says, After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Don't you love that Paul can't resist the urge to say, I told you so. (laughs) Then you would have spread yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep on your courage, keep up your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. God speaking is his doing. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. On the 14th night, 14 days in this storm, they were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found that the water was 120 feet deep. Soundings, this is pretty cool. Just a side note, this is Bible geek stuff from Google. Soundings, they're taking the ship and when they take a sounding, they drop a huge rope with uh, metal at the end. And as far, when, the, when the lead hits the bottom, they roll the rope up, and wherever the, the watermark was the rope, that's how deep they can tell the water. I thought that was cool. Sorry. <laughs> Fearing, a short time later, they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors from the boat. Then Paul said to the centurion, notice the transition here, then Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, you cannot be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. At the beginning, they didn't listen to Paul. God uses Paul to encourage the many, and now everybody is on the word, hinging on the word of Paul, hinging on the word of God. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. 
For the last 14 days, he said, you have been constant, in constant suspense and you have gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now I urge you to take some food. You need it to survive. Not, none of, none of you, not one of you will lose a single hair from his head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there was 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing, again, what got them into the trouble in the first place. They began by throwing the grain into the sea. And when daylight came, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move, and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. If the prisoners that were with Paul escaped, the soldiers and the centurion would be guilty of the crimes that those prisoners committed. So this is a big deal. So they wanted to kill the prisoners to prevent that from happening. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship. In this way, everyone reached the land safely. As humans, our first instinct is to stop our suffering. Like, Lord, take me out of this consequence. Lord, take me out of this circumstance. And sometimes, and I personally praise God for the times that He does mercifully, graciously take us out of some of those situations and those moments. But I find there's other times where God is up to something that we really don't know what He's doing. We really don't know why He's allowing us to be in this situation, why this trial has come, and what's actually going on here. But who knows, we shall see. Cue the story of Joseph. Think about the story of Joseph, okay? From Genesis. Joseph was the 11th son of Jacob, and Jacob loved Joseph dearly. Joseph had a dream from God, and how that dream came to be was not how Joseph would have expected it. So Joseph had a dream that his father and his brothers were all bowing down to him. It's a great dream to have. (laughs) Um, Now, he thought he should just go tell his family about it, and they would all like, oh, man, Joseph, you're the promised child then. We're going to lift you up. And his brothers were not happy with it, okay? Not happy with it. Now, Joseph had this dream. The way the dream came to be was not how any of us would have expected it to be. His ten older brothers... Uh, sell him into slavery. Some of us know the story. Then he ends up, he's a slave now, then he gets, en- ends up being wrongly convicted and ends up in jail, where God actually blesses him in that jail, and everybody actually, uh, Joseph is in charge of everything in that jail for the most part. And in that jail, he interprets a dream of a cupbearer to Pharaoh. And Joseph interprets this dream, and the, by Joseph interpreting the dream, it encourages the cupbearer to be put back into place with Pharaoh, because he was in jail. Pharaoh thought there was something shady going on. Joseph encourages him by interpreting the dream, and, the cup, and Joseph tells the cupbearer, remember me. When you tell Pharaoh who told you about this dream, remember me. Joseph had to wait two years. Does this sound familiar? 
Paul in jail two years and then still doesn't know how he's going to get out of this. He had to wait two years. And then after two years, the cupbearer remembers Joseph because Pharaoh now needs a dream to be interpreted and the cupbearer goes, I know a guy. I know a guy. So he goes to get Joseph. And Joseph interprets Pharaoh's dream successfully and Pharaoh uh, likes Joseph so much and knows that Joseph is under a God that actually speaks, that Pharaoh puts him as prime minister of all the land in Egypt. And Joseph said something very interesting to Pharaoh. It's not me that will interpret the dream. It's God that will interpret the dream. This is a man that has just been through some crazy stuff in his life, and as he's getting out of it, he's got no anger, no hate in terms of that saying, I'm the one that is going to interpret this dream. He actually still relies on God to do something for him. God will bring us safely through all of it. It's not ourselves. It's not ourselves. Paul was encouraged individually by God in the jail and then encourages the many. Joseph, at the end of his life, there's a famine in the land and at the end of his life, his brothers come come to Joseph and Egypt and need help with food. And at the end, his brothers are afraid that Joseph is going to react really and really give them what they deserve. And this is what Joseph says in Genesis 50 to his brothers at the end when his brothers think Joseph's going to turn on us. He remembers what we did. But Joseph said to them, don't be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. So then don't be afraid. I will provide for you and your children. And he reassured them and spoke kindly to them. And it's beautiful how Joseph really can look back to the trials in his life and say, God was with me through all of it. God brought me safely through all of it for the blessing not just for my life, but the blessing for many. This is what he names his children in Genesis 41. Sorry, 51. Uh, um, Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh and said, It is because God has made... Sorry, Genesis 41. It is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. He named his firstborn Manasseh, and that's what his name means. God has made me forget all my trouble and all my, fa- and, and all my father's household. The second son Joseph had was named Ephraim, and, it, and, and Joseph said... I've named him Ephraim because God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering. Made Joseph fruitful in the land of his suffering. He made Paul fruitful through his faith in the land of his suffering on that boat. And my prayer for us today is that in those times of suffering, in that land of suffering, in that chaos, that we would be fruitful because of our faith in God and what God is like and what the promises of God are, are for us. When the enemy attacked, Paul didn't push people aside. Paul brought the people together in unity. He didn't push the people. He didn't start throwing the people overboard. I told you so. You're gone. I told you so. You're gone overboard. He brought people together in those moments. God could have saved Paul from boarding that ship altogether, but God had a bigger plan for the situation, the saving of 276 people physically. But those people that were saved physically now have the opportunity to go, who is Paul's God. Who is this God that Paul says, I worship and I, I am bound to, to Jesus, to God? That's who, that's who God wants to bless, the many. 
And nothing stops God from his word. His word doesn't come back void ever. And this is much easier preached than lived out. This is much easier said than lived out. But that's why we have the word of God. James 1 says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Notice that the sailors, when they saw a little bit of the land, when they saw a little bit of the light of daybreak, they wanted to take the lifeboat and just take off themselves. The word of God in James tells us, don't do that. Just let God do what he knows how to do and let perseverance have its fruitfulness in our lives. Paul could have been very upset and started, started attacking people. But Paul doesn't, and Jesus didn't either when he stood in our place. In darkness on the cross, Jesus literally looked at his Father in heaven and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Those were real feelings that he had. But because of the promise of God that God had told him when he was baptized, that Jesus, you are my son in whom I am well pleased, because of the joy set before him for the blessing of many lives like us sitting here today, Jesus continued forward and persevered in what the testing in his life was. Paul's been walking with God, relying on God, eating of the tree of of life. And we see the fruitfulness of that time spent by God's word, inclining our ears to what God has to say to us and to the people around us. And it's faith that Paul speaks. It's life that is spoken just like God did in Genesis. Light and faith and life in the midst of our darkness, in the midst of our storms. And maybe you sit here again today not believing in Jesus like this, not believing in God, a God like this, not believing that Jesus is King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Humbly, we do not have the strength to save ourselves. And don't let the world dictate what we doubt in. The world will tell you that's, mm, Jesus doesn't feel too good, says a couple weird things, we can't really understand him. If it doesn't feel good, if it doesn't feel right, you shouldn't do it, it's probably not good for you. Don't let the world tell you what to doubt. I would say doubt your doubts. And maybe, who knows, we shall see what God can do in your life, in my life. And to finish, Joseph and Paul all had two things they had to answer in this period of trial, in this period of testing, and it was this. Is God good, and can God be trusted? And those are questions that we need to ask ourselves based on the promises of God, based on who God is. Is he good to us? Is he good to the world? And can he be trusted with our lives?